Well, good morning, everybody. Man, we are so excited that you're with us this morning and just worshiping. Man, can we give it up for our students to help lead out worship today? That was awesome. Man, we're so grateful for them. My name is Ben Chapman. If you're new here, I have the opportunity to be the lead pastor here. And, and I, I um, has started Every Nation Seminary where I'm going to a degree in theology and missions. And I'm so grateful for, for once I was a heretic, but now I have been set right. And, uh, and what's incredible about Every Nation Seminary is that it just, uh, man, it develops pastors and church planners and, and campus missionaries. And the unique part of our program is you have the faculty advisor, you have a preaching coach, but you also get a ministry mentor. And that person comes alongside of you to walk with you and to pray with you to make sure that you have a good work-life family balance. And I'm so grateful because my ministry mentor is in the house today. And uh, Seth Trimmer, Dr. Seth Trimmer is incredible. And he has um, literally uh, just helped me in tremendous ways. We've, um, I've gotten to be so transparent with this man. This man loves people. Uh, he pastors a church in, in Oregon, Corvallis, Oregon, and uh, he, he played football there for Oregon State. He, uh, he has all those accolades, but this man loves people, and uh, I've never met a man who loves people quite like he does, and I'm thankful in his, the busyness of writing his dissertation and the busyness of becoming that and the busyness of leading a church and going around the country speaking he took a time to call me and to mentor me and to pray with me and pray for my, my kids when they were struggling, pray for my family, pray for you, pray for our church. The random text messages of encouragement have meant so much to me, and I'm so grateful that Dr. Seth Trimmer is going to be able to share God's word with us this morning on Next Gen Sunday. Would you stand on your feet and welcome Dr. Seth as he comes up this morning? Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I'm going to all sit down. It's too nice. I, uh, it's fun to be with you, although small caveat to that, I guess. Uh, from the moment I've landed, I haven't met hardly anyone that hasn't apologized for your heat to me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who sinned that brought this level of judgment upon you, but I just don't know. I was uh, at, uh, at your men's retreat this uh, past weekend. Any men in the house? There we go. A couple of you. Yep. Yep. And uh, it was really great uh, to be, be with them. And uh, I, uh, I, just, I just felt compelled to, to share that, you know, every time you come to the great nation of Texas, you know, that uh, especially when you're an Oregonian, just us lowly Oregonians up there, you know, we hug trees and wear flannel and smoke weed. That's what we do. And so whenever you come here, it's just like it's so intimidating. You know, you have uh, it's just this this big state and everything is bigger here and all the, all the guns, you know, and the, and the trucks, my goodness, the trucks, you know what I mean? Um, it's, uh, it's quite impressive. But, uh, you know, I hear the phrase all the time, don't mess with Texas. Don't mess with Texas. And I just, I just, I don't, I've just got a, a, a thought sort of experiment. I wonder if we took away your AC, if you'd be that tough anymore. I just wonder. If I, <laughs> uh, yeah. God bless AC, amen. I'm uh, I am really thrilled to be here. Uh, your pastor has been an absolute delight to build a relationship with and to get to know. 
and you guys have been a real delight to me to pray for. Um, I uh, just this is a, this is not a paid product promotion right now, but um, I I think you have the coolest church name that uh, that I'm aware of. Yeah. I like Luminous Church a lot. Uh, I can't go I can't go back and redo Grace City at this point, you know. So, um, but uh, yeah, well done on that. But you just as a people. Um, I realize this is my first time being with y'all here in uh, San Antonio, uh, repping the brand and everything. But uh, there's uh, there are times in prayer where one of my favorite parts about it is not just the things that I ask the Father for, but the way the Father helps me to almost feel about you. There's moments, I don't know if you've had moments like this, but it's, it's a very special thing that I've learned to develop relationally with God. Where as I'm praying, there's, there's moments where God shares his heart with me for the one that I'm praying for, or the people that I'm praying for. And my goodness, does he delight over you. He really treasures you. And uh, it's just an absolute privilege and honor to be here with you guys. And you've got uh, an amazing pastor that loves you very deeply. Um, and yes, he's quite vulnerable and transparent with me. But usually what that means, let me just be real frank. Can I be real frank with you? Why not? Came all this way hot outside. We might as well talk real. Most of the time when pastors say that I can be just real vulnerable and honest and real, what they what they mean is they they're complaining about their people. That's what they usually mean. I've been in the game a while. Been in ministry now for 20 years. And that's what it usually means. We just need spaces for pastors to be real and to be honest and be open. And usually what that means is we just need a place for everyone to come put on blast every servant that said no, every person that didn't jump on board with their idea, or everybody that had a complaint or a criticism. And there might be a legitimate place to process some of the relational emotional pain that can come from our side of leading a church without question. But when you're a pastor, when your pastor opens up and is honest and transparent, uh, to hear what goes on in his soul for the love of God and the love of you simultaneously, uh, I just don't hear him complain about you. He loves you. He cares for you. He burns for this city. He burns for this campus. And he longs to see God's kingdom come. Uh, and those are the things uh, that uh, are just so fun to be able to partner with you guys with. Um, before I say too much more, uh, I'd love to introduce you to my people, to the humans that I have made in the... I, well, I didn't make them. I contributed slightly to the process. My wife is the one with the human 3D printer on the inside of her, so she's the one that technically did the bulk of the work. Um, but uh, there's, there's, my, uh, there's my folks. So uh, that's, uh, that's me in the middle. Uh, I've got four kids. Uh, my oldest is 18 and just moved out of the house on his way to college. Whew. Can we just have a moment? Is that okay if we just have a moment? I've, I'm okay. I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> It was, uh, it was awesome. He's only a few miles away. He's staying in town to go to Oregon State, which is fun. Um, but yeah, I'm at that point of life. I have a junior and a freshman uh, in high school there. Uh, my second son, this is actually a few months like uh, old. My son there in the black North Face jacket that's on my right, he's now taller than me. So he's just gone berserk. Uh, I knew I shouldn't have bought that much milk. I knew it was an ungodly amount of milk for one person to consume. And uh, so he's, he's just jumped all the way up. And then my daughter's going into... Uh, fifth grade, uh, and she, um, how do we say this delicately, she was the soccer ball that slipped past the goalie, uh, she was a surprise, total surprise, absolute complete surprise, and uh, there she is, 
just a wonderful gift that we could never have ever lived life without. So that's, uh, that's my family. And then there's a couple extras thrown in. Like, this is kind of like the 3 a.m. infomercials back for all y'all Gen Xers out there. Like, if you call within the next few minutes, we'll throw in a free set of steak knives. So um, on the left there uh, is uh, Bum Joon Park. And so he was a, a Korean student that uh, lived with us for a couple of years. Um, we've had so many international students from all over the world, Middle East and uh, Asia and all over the place that have come and have lived with us. He's the most recent. Um, and uh, so he recently graduated and we'll have a Chinese student coming here uh, in the fall. And then on the right uh, is, uh, that's Joe Walker. And so he was a soccer player at Oregon State University and a young man that I had been discipling. And uh, he ended up getting engaged to a wonderful young woman. But uh, as you are when you are in college uh, and then you get engaged, you start realizing money. Money is a thing. Weddings cost money and life costs money, you know what I mean? And when you don't have seven roommates splitting the bill, you know what I mean, on everything. So, uh, so he came and moved in with us for about uh, six, seven months. Uh, and we just blessed him with a free place to crash so he could save up his, his uh, shekels and, uh, and pay for their wedding. So that's, uh, that's what happened there. And uh, so that's, that's the Trimmer house. It is chaos. It is constant chaos. And uh, there's always people coming in, moving in and out. And that's the way we absolutely uh, love it. Um, so that's, uh, that's my family. Now, I know this is Next Gen Sunday. Is that correct? Any Next Geners in the room? Yeah, a few of you guys. I knew, I knew if I called out the Next Gen, the best I would get would be a, eh. <laughs> uh, because, because Gen Z, because Gen Z, not quite as into the hype as the Gen Xers, you know, can be at times, but uh, we love you anyway. Uh, what, uh, what's super cool, um, any time that I get to go be part of an Every Nation church and talk about the next generation is how deeply that DNA is built into us. But I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, as far as Every Nation churches go, I'm pretty sure I should be on a billboard somewhere. So when I grew up in Corvallis, Oregon, we were the least church county in the United States at the time. Not a lot of churches. Uh, a few handful of churches, but they've so far left the gospel well behind. They're just kind of a functional place for old ladies to crochet and knit and for the kind of political soup du jour. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, they're kind of those sort of spaces. Uh, but not a lot of like Jesus-loving, gospel-believing churches. Not, not a ton of them. Um, and so when I grew up, I knew nothing. I could barely spell Jesus. You know what I mean? As far as I knew, Jesus was the kid who sat behind me in homeroom. That was uh, like, you mean Jesus? He seems all right. I don't know why he needs to save me, but I guess he's all right. You know, uh, that's, that's about as far as I got. Um, and I really was curious about the lowercase t's that lots of people kind of wore around their necks, but again, didn't really understand anything about what those meant either. Um, and it wasn't until actually the very last part of high school where I started hitting what I would call a much more existential crisis, where I really started to wonder, like, who the heck am I? Why am I here? What's the purpose of this whole thing? And I really started to think more deeply about it, because for all of my life, it was just kind of built on the consumption of as many calories as I could, playing sports, chasing girls, and, like, and all the rest. So I, there was something in me by my senior year of high school that realized that, you know, there's got to be something more. And that was capped off right at the end of my senior year by a dream. I had a very specific, very um, powerful dream at the end of my senior year of high school. I still remember it so vividly. It was one of those dreams where you swear it's real. You have no idea how to discern reality from the fact that you're just in a dream. And in this dream, I was driving in a car with one of my best friends who happened to be a Christian. And the car went over a cliff, crashed, blew up, and everything went black. 
And everything that I knew, like at that moment, was that I was dead. However, I was still conscious. Dead and conscious. And the first thought that came to me was, what about my friend? And the instant I thought about my friend, there was just this wave of feeling like he's fine. He's also dead, but he's fine. Which followed up by an immediate sensation. Well, now I am dead, but I don't know if I'm fine. And my first move, the scary move, at death and conscious, in my dreams, you might say, this is a really complicated, like, intellectual dream you're having. I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, organs. Um, a lot of rain. A lot of moss. I don't know what it does to the brain, but apparently something. And I remember, I remember my first instinct, the first reaction that came out of me. It almost surprised me that it came out of me. So I started bargaining with God. A God that I didn't even believe in. And I knew my life was well out of my hands. And when I woke up from that dream, have you ever woken up from a dream with just utter relief? Oh. It was the most relieving moment I've ever felt in my life. I wasn't dead, but I did realize I got some big questions I had to answer. And there is a moment when those questions will be too late to answer. I better get, better get on it. And I didn't know much about this whole uh, God sort of category or question, um, but I at least had a curiosity that had risen up in me. And by the time that I had graduated high school, a brave four foot ten girl, a uh, redheaded girl that I had a biology class with, um, gave me a Bible at graduation, standing in front of my parents, the most awkward gift that I've ever received in my life. Um, did not know I needed it, did not know I wanted it, and did not want it to have it given to me in public nor in front of my parents, but she was bold and loved her from Jesus, uh, sat next to me in biology class, and uh, she ended up going to Grace City, the very, the very church I would end up being at later on. And that Bible sat on my shelf collecting dust for, for, you know, a good little while. But the moment I got onto the Oregon State University campus as a football player, the first team Anna met was a Christian who invited me to a Bible study. Uh, I did what, uh, what every rational freshman in college does when you are first invited to a Bible study. I ghosted him. Uh, I said, yes, I would, and then I never did. And if you're a campus missionary in the room, you know exactly what that is like. So I'm sorry for your pain. I've also been through that pain, and also that's just the way that it is. However, fast forward another like month or two, I'm still in the middle of fall term, the beginning of college. I'm living in the dorms, and I get a knock on my door on a Saturday morning. And I open the door to see someone I had never seen before in my life. He happens to be the campus director of the Every Nation Campus Ministry there at Oregon State. And he o his opening line is, hi, my name is Tori. I heard there was a football player living in this room and wanted to see if it was true. Yes, I guess, I am. He says, oh, great. Well, I am inviting you to, I think it was a pizza party or something like that, for student athletes. And... Uh, you know that moment when your natural instinct rises up in you and you're like, oh, there is zero chance I will ever go to this random stranger's pizza party. You know what I'm talking about? Can you imagine this moment? Like, 
I am not an extrovert. A, I'm Oregonian, so that already puts me on the introvert side of the scale. But B, like there's no way a stranger invites me to a party. That doesn't sound like a good time. You know what sounds like a good time? Staying at home, canceling my plans, and, uh, you know, just being with my favorite, you know. That sounds like a great time. That sounds like the, that sounds like the best. So everything in me just was waiting for the moment to say no and shut the door. And I couldn't. My body physically couldn't shut the door. And I just felt this overwhelming sense. It's all, and it, it was one of those moments where I started to feel like I was going a little crazy because what I wanted to do wasn't what I started wanting to do. And I just said yes. I went and I ate their pizza and I heard about Jesus. And when I heard about Jesus, it's just as if I got right back to my dream in high school, and all of a sudden I realized, oh, yeah, I need to figure this thing out. And I can't explain it, but there was some supernatural level of trust, connection, that God gave me to this Every Nation campus minister uh, to ask my questions, act like a fool, to like antagonize him in the middle of his Bible study. I did all of it. And then a year later, my life crumbles, starts falling apart, all the anxiety, all the fear, my, like, Scariest things I would have ever worried about started to come to pass. My family goes through crisis. And I don't know. I don't know where to go. And you know what it felt like? It felt like, it felt like I was a without a And now all of a sudden, so many of these Bible studies, so many of these Bible verses I've heard the Christians would tell me about, all of a sudden they started to make sense. All of a sudden I started to realize Seth Strimmer being the Lord of his life had gotten me to where I was, and I saw my life in a, with a realistic lens all of a sudden, and all of a sudden I wasn't hopeful about my future. I was deeply devastated about my present. And it was in that moment I gave my life to Jesus at an Every Nation campus. Evangelists that had come into town to share the gospel. I still remember my body thinking and knowing deep in my gut that I couldn't explain to you, like, why it was so real and palpable to me, but I knew in my heart that I was made to follow Jesus. Gave my life to him then. So far, heaven. And from that moment, I did what, uh, what the only thing I knew to do. The only thing I knew to do. Like, how did I become a Christian? I became a Christian when another Christian had the boldness enough to talk to me about Jesus. That's how I became a Christian. Uh, but what I quickly found out is that's not how most people think Christians are made. I started to meet a whole bunch of other Christians, and they grew up in Christian families. And when they think about where Christians come from, their answer would have been something along the lines of, well, when a Christian mommy and a Christian daddy really love each other, they want to be close to each other, and like they make other Christians. Well, Christians only come from the preaching of the gospel. When one Christian shares the gospel with Jesus, now, if you're a parent and have children, children are great people to share the gospel with. I would implore you to do that. But God has no grandchildren. And Jesus desires to meet with us and reconcile us and adopt us. And that comes from the good news. Jesus, crucified and risen Jesus, the true king of the world, died for your sins. And he risen from the grave so that you could receive forgiveness and eternal life. That is the good news that arrested me, changed me. And all that I knew now of following Jesus meant to start imitating the people 
that led me to Jesus. I started going after all my teammates. I started preaching to anything that would listen to me. The world would stop, and I would just have to tell them about Jesus. You may not know your creator, but I do. And let me just tell you that I was just a, that was me. And eventually, I just worked myself into a job. I got so busy with ministry, I started baptizing some of my teammates. Couldn't baptize a white dude to save my life, but like every black dude from Compton, like wanted to come to the altar. So that was a fun little ministry like time that I was having. Um, and I went into campus ministry. Yes, because there was for sure a desire growing in me to do it. But there was just the practical reality of like, I don't know how I can go work another job and actually disciple all of the people that God has actually given to me. Um, which seems like a great way to go into ministry. And then from campus ministry, I did that for four years. And uh, then our senior pastor on a Monday morning staff meeting without any prior warning quit. And not only did he quit, but my associate pastor quit. And not only did my associate pastor quit, but the executive pastor quit. And not only did the executive pastor quit, but all the elders quit. Uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a great Monday. And I was the last one in the room, on staff, or with any, like, any leadership in the church whatsoever. I'd been a campus missionary for roughly three and a half, almost four years at that point. Unknown to the larger church body for the most part. But uh, our church was obviously hurting and in a pretty bad way. A lot of people were burned out and frustrated and so on and so forth. And here I was, uh, sitting in a room with a bunch of people that were leaving the church and done with the church and ready to move on with their lives. And uh, they said, well, Seth, you can't do any worse. Why don't you give it a shot? Uh, that was 16 years ago. I was 27 years old. And since that moment of leading our Every Nation Church in Corvallis, Oregon, we have reached hundreds, if not thousands of people. Most of which don't stay in Corvallis because it's a small town and there's not enough jobs there, which means that we're able to stay a pretty medium-sized church but just reach new students every single day. And one of the most beautiful ways that we've seen this happen, which I'll talk more about in a moment, is that we have not seen it exclusively happen because we delegated the responsibility of reaching students to a select few with a professional ministry title. But somehow, in a miraculous way, God brought our church together holistically as a community, not just to love Jesus, but to deeply care about the next generation. When I started as a pastor at 27 years old, there were no other campus missionaries. I was the only one that was left. So when I became a senior pastor, there was no one else left to go out on campus. And so I simply had to ask the church, hey, would you please care about campus? I'm not asking you to go out on campus. I'm not asking you to go out of your way. I'm simply asking, if a student should happen to come across our community, or you should happen to come across them, would you please love them? However you can. Can you bake a casserole? Because our white people are great at casseroles. Do that. Do that. Just do that. Are you like great at hospitality and love throwing game nights? Do that. If you, if you can't cook anything but crab mac and cheese, like, take them out to lunch. Do that. Do that. And our people just did. And we started seeing, like, at first a small trickle, but then eventually a deluge of students pouring in, being loved on by a spiritual family. And I watched, uh, I had an 84-year-old grandfather in our church, probably like the 
one of the patriarchs of our church, oldest in our church by many, many years, an old Dutch man. Very black and white. Death, this is right. Death, this is wrong. Like, yeah, whole, like, holy cow here. Like, that kind of guy. And when he heard the call that we had to care about the next generation, even though most of us were not the next generation, the 80-year-old Dutch grandpa said, okay. And he became my middle school teacher. And when I thought, there is no man less relevant than him. He had a pocket protector, literally. Khaki pants, New Balance shoes. I mean, he had the whole thing going for him, you know? Just a, a whole vibe. He didn't have relevant speak. If you try to use any of the slang around him, he, like, you might have experienced violence, you know what I mean? Like, like the Bible talks about laying on of hands, but he might have done it to you suddenly. You know, like that could have happened. But what he did was invest himself in his kids and spent time with them and had real conversations with them. And I watched the least relevant human being literally reach in because he was willing to be available. Now, I think there was a supernatural grace in his life, but there was no natural calling. But he said yes, and God met him. And eventually, he saw leaders raise up, campus missionaries raised up, people released and sent out. But when I talk about the next generation, you know, it's not just some, like, missional tagline. It's not just something that, like, sits on a poster somewhere in the wall of our church. It's not just some hashtag that we're all supposed to rally around. I read it. I am it. I was it. And I've seen the powerful blessing that comes from any community to say yes, say yes, caring about them. Not just quickly dismissing themselves so they don't feel particularly gifted, young enough hip enough or cool enough. But the church of Jesus has never been built on hip or cool. It's been built on the love of Christ. That's what it's built on. And we need church to say yes. We will. I think beautiful things. With that in mind, I should only oh, talk about the Bible now if that's okay. Figure I should do that. Uh, Matthew chapter nine. Matthew chapter 9, I want to just use to kind of set up to talk about uh, this next generation. Um, I want to take a few minutes to talk about um, Jesus' view and the heart that uh, he offers to us. And then I want to talk about the challenges that I see, especially in this next generation, Gen Z and the one below it, whatever they're going to end up calling it, Gen Alpha, whatever they're going to be. And then I want to talk about the beautiful opportunities that I believe you and I both have to make an incredible difference. So here's uh, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to go from verse 35. It says that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And when he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, he told them to ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest but this was Jesus' common, everyday experience. Eventually, his popularity started to rise significantly because not just the message that he proclaimed, which is already controversial and somewhat magnetic enough, but the demonstration of that message as he was healing people of all the sicknesses and diseases. 
which is a pattern that Jesus not only demonstrated with his own life, but even mentored all of his disciples to follow. That the proclamation of the kingdom was always meant to be given with a demonstration of the kingdom. And the two were always meant to go hand in hand. Jesus went through all the towns and villages and came across all these fields, and he announced to them the kingdom of God, the good news that God's reign and rule was coming to earth, and all the sin, evil, death, mourning, pain, crying, suffering, all of it was going to come to an end. The good news that somehow in him and through him, God was going to reconcile to himself all people that were lost, sinful, and broken. But that wasn't just a message that he gave, and then he would move on to the next city. He would deliver the message of God's kingdom coming to this earth. And he says, and you want to have a small little appetizer of what it's going to be like? In my kingdom, there's not going to be any No death, little girl, no suffering. Jesus gives practical, tangible demonstrations. It's not the full meal of the kingdom to come, but it's an appetizer to make us hungry. And as Jesus goes from town to town and village to village, and people start experiencing the demonstration of the kingdom, practical outpouring of his love and power, and the message of hope that God has not given up on this world nor you, but loves you and is pursuing you, and desires to forgive you in order to reconcile you, crowds are coming. And when Jesus looked over the crowds, what's amazing to me, one of the things I love about reading the Gospels is any they reveal to us how Jesus felt. Because what's easy to do is to pull your Bible out and produce a theology of like how to think about God. And there's a way that you can know God through certainly right theology. It's actually quite important. Knowing sound doctrine and good theology is what just helps you to know a person rightly. So knowing right information or knowing right facts or right history about me is what's going to help you to know me. But knowing right information, right facts, right truth about God is what will actually help you to know God. And rather than just creating this abstract image of a divine being that just looks like how you want him to look, or is just some sort of mirror reflection of just you, if you're being honest, Jesus sets us free through the scriptures to give us a theology of how we think about God so that we can rightly relate to him. But more than that, there's moments where we get a glimpse, not in just to how to think about God, but even into how to understand the way that God feels about us. And it says he had compassion in the crowd. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Fundamental problem humanity that I didn't just experience at 18 years old, that you and I have experienced in each of our lives, maybe even current at this moment. We're sheep. Now, I, uh, I come from the Midwest from Colorado, Nebraska, even though I grew up in Oregon. All my family, we were like the only ones out in Oregon, all my family was in northeast Colorado, all over Colorado, so forth. And they're all farmers and ranchers. So every summer I would go out to their ranch, and I would raise sheep. And I tell you how stupid sheep are. They are so dumb. They cannot live on their own. They require assistance at every stage of the game. Without a shepherd, sheep are hoes. And the Bible boldly and offensively announces that to us. But all you have to do 
put aside a little bit of pride, step back and realize, man, am I finite. I didn't create myself. Most of my life, I couldn't produce for myself. I didn't choose where I was born, what family I was born into. And maybe I can say that I worked hard, but do you know how many different sorts, sets of conditions and experiences and circumstances had to take place for you to be you? And there's just this humility that like, hmm, there's this transcendent hole in my heart that longs for something greater than anything this world can actually meet. Maybe, just maybe, that isn't just an evolutionary trait that somehow made us more advantageous to survive as a species, but indeed the common human experience for thousands of years has been a connection to God, a desire for God, a desire for the transcendent. And you and I are living in Western society, which is the only society in all of human history that has tried to build itself without any view of the transcendent. Thinking that this life is not only all there is, it's all you need. And the resources of this life and of this world, of this small little window that you get on it, are the best that you can ever hope for. And this has gotten so thick into our cultural bloodstream, and it's been passed down genetically, down to the next generation, that you and I stand at the foot of Jesus as he looks out over us, and he says, oh man, you think you don't need a shepherd, that you're the captain of your own ship, that you can manage your own life, or that through, if you just have enough self-care, or if you just if you just remove all the oppressive boundaries holding you back, then maybe somehow or in some way you can ascend and live your best life. Jesus says, oh no, oh no. You were made for more. You were made for, and there's no category of success or emotional health or physical health or body fat percentage or like there's nothing in this whole life that you'll ever find that will meet the actual need in your soul. Deep a shepherd. How does he feel? Pastor Ben drove me past that their campus, uh, uh, just not far from there. It's just every time, every time you drive by a campus of <coughs> tens of thousands of students, it's hard to not feel the weight. Every time I drive past a high school, middle school, it's just hard to not feel the weight of complexity. Especially when you know all of our youth are growing up in a world where they're being trained to not need them. Any heartbreak? I know how that story ends. I know what's in restoration next door. Because we know what compelled Jesus all the way to Jerusalem, onto a cross, and to be faithful to the mission the Father has given him. This is what today still fills me, and many of you, that same compassion that burns in us because of what Jesus did for us to actually go and spread this good news through word and deed as powerfully as we possibly can. There's a lot of things that are said about this, uh, this generation coming up. Um, but I love Gen Z. And I think I'm the only person that has ever said those words ever in human history. And everyone says that they're lazy, idle, so far into their emotions that there actually is no like amount of good beyond them. Um, that they're addicted to technology, never look up from the screen. Like we're going to have like surgeons specializing in the next pump produced from everyone doing this all the time. Like, but I believe that 
that generation between 11 and 25 right now, middle school, high school, college, loved by God, loved by Him. So deep. Believe it. I believe there's a compassion. They didn't grow up choosing for smartphones and social media to be a thing. They didn't choose for all the technological conditions and for AI and for algorithms that are completely warping and distorting things the way they were. But I believe God, no matter how dark, difficult it might be in our days now, He's going to do something powerful and miraculous. I want to be. I want to be. I believe that you as a church can absolutely. Let me tell you, there's that's a real thing happening. We have crammed a generation full of ideology. Uh, one uh, sociologist and history professor talked about the fundamental ideology of our day is oppressive individualism. Oppressive individualism. Which is the notion that our identity is formed from within. That there is no external authority that has, has or should have any weight of defining who we are. Now, traditionally, this has come through the relationships of family or God, religion, church, community, so on and so forth. But there's been a complex relationship of both our internal sense of identity and the external confirmation of that that comes from without. But we have been a society that's completely rejected that notion entirely and said, that, no, 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 no. Who you really are is very deep somewhere within you. You need to go hunting and searching for that. And it's going to be based entirely on how you feel. And you will be your most happiest and fulfilled when you externally express with authenticity who you feel yourself to be internally. And this ideology has led to this rat race of everyone stuck in the abyss of the subjectivity of their feelings. Wondering constantly about who they are. And the worst part of it all is not just how warped it is in terms of actually forming a real sense of our own personal identity. The real trap of it all is how self-centered it ends up making us to be. You and I, made by a God of incredible love, were made to be human beings that loved really well. And the more we're drawn into ourselves, dying in this little like tar pit of our own internal feelings, it prohibits us from actually loving other people well. When I'm focused on who I am, I'm not able to actually love anybody else very well. And the insistence that, no, 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 if I just figure out me, if I just decide who I am, then and only then, only if I love me, can I then be able to love anybody else. And all of this is just a twisted notion that's utterly backwards. But you and I were not made for self-love. We were made for God's love. And this ideology comes right alongside a whole cultural stream, which has now produced what other sociologists like Charles Taylor and Philip Reeves call a therapeutic society. Many years ago, there were all kinds of sociologists predicting that as religion would decline in America, it would not go away. It would just adapt. And as religion would go down, they said, it would be replaced by something else in its form. And what many are now noting is the religious overtones that are now happening in the mental and emotional health space, where therapists are the new priests. I can't tell you how many pastors feel unqualified, incompetent, and unable to simply minister to people or to make disciples of any kind because it feels like every issue is a mental health issue that requires a professional. Maybe some of you have felt the same. Like the only solution that you know to go to is to find some qualified, like, PhD, like psychologist that can help you work through all this. And I am so for counseling. I've been through counseling. I'm a product of amazing Christian counselors that have helped me. 
I love psychology. My PhD was done on the fusion of Trinitarian theology and psychology. I love it. I can nerd out on it with you all day long. I believe it's a best blessing from God, all that is actually true that has come through the psychological community to help human beings understand our wiring. Love it. However, it is not God. He's not your therapist. Is not, and he's certainly not your savior. And it is possible, my friends, to pursue mental health and forfeit your soul. Moreover, we not only haven't crammed ideology down throats, we've turned 11-year-olds into activists over issues vastly more complicated that they can even understand, let alone have a good solution for. And we've sent them out with every flag in the world to proclaim like the good news of utopia that's coming if we all just embrace a secular vision that we've moved on from God and human beings are awesome if they just tap into their true inner self. Am I lying? And you know what has happened simultaneously to all of this wave of ideology coming to the young generation, being dumped on them with extreme measures? The most anxious and depressed and suicidal generation that we know of in modern history. The average anxiety level of a teenager today is the same as a psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Is it working? Is this the utopia? And you know what we've tried? Literally everything. What have we done to try to help the mental health crisis among the youth? Everything. We've tried better therapy. We've tried better meds. We've tried affirmations. We've tried listening to them. We've tried removing all of our authority from them and just try to come alongside them as their friends. We've tried everything. And by all measures and standards, the problem is only getting worse. Which leads you back. When Jesus looks over the crowd, when he looks over the youth, what does he see if not extreme compassion? Compassion because they're sheep without a shepherd, and those pretending to be their shepherds are leading them down roads that are not feeding their soul. And we're putting burdens upon them they can't possibly carry and telling them the answer is always themselves. I believe a better answer. I believe a better answer is a God that made you, knows you, loves you, every bit of your brokenness, died for you, and longed to restore you into his kingdom and give you a purpose to live for the very thing you were made for. That is the good news. That is the good news that we have. So here's where I want to close with just a few hopeful thoughts because you might be feeling a little distressed or overwhelmed. But you know what? That's what anxiety does. Anxiety begets anxiety. And when the church feels overwhelmed with the needs, especially of anxious generations, we tend to either try to overfunction or run away. But I'm telling you, there's a better way and it's the way of Jesus. And I think in specifically, there's three very practical ways that you all as a church, as families, and as individuals can make a powerful difference in the lives of the people. And first, simply introduce them to Jesus as your shepherd. Now, one of the fallacies that especially many well-intended Christian parents can make is thinking that if only I get into the right church or with the right youth pastor or with the right campus ministry, then my kids will turn out spiritually fine. But you know what every 
study and survey ever done on the health of the youth and their spiritual relationship with God has ever told us that the number one factor for the quality of a young person's faith moving into early adulthood is the authenticity and sincerity of their parents. Meaning, they don't need you to micromanage them or push them or control them. They need you to love Jesus with your life, everything that you've got, and to demonstrate that love in practical ways. Not just to them, but to your church, to the community. They need to see that you have all kinds of people that are outside of your bubble. And when it's real to you, and when you're up in the morning, and when they wake up wiping the crust out of their eyes, and they see you with your nose buried in your Bible, and when they see you like at the unexpected bill, but you lift up your hands and you're worshiping and praising God like through it all, when they see you deal with adversity through prayer, when they see you come together in faith, and when they see you quoting Bible verses casually because it's so deeply stoked into your own heart, these are the things that actually impact the next generation. You can't force the faith on them, but my goodness, if you would look into your own heart and deal with your own doubt and work through your own trust issues and actually allow Jesus to come more fully alive in you, that, that can impact the next generation. That will reveal to them just how good of a shepherd we have. Second, oh, do they need spiritual family. I just told you the story of our church. A story that's still ongoing. And here's what I can tell you. My best campus missionaries ain't in their 20s. I've got campus missionaries with gray hair into retirement that just love opening up their doors and letting students come in. Some of y'all, even as I say that, that excites you. Just be open and ready to love however you can. Students need to know that there is a spiritual family ready, ready to receive them, welcome them, and be loved. Campus ministries and youth ministries, fine, great. But let me tell you this. There's a reason why here at Every Nation, why we do campus ministries and local churches together, one foot on the campus, one foot in the community. Because any church that is just a single generation is important. Healthy spiritual father. Lastly, one of the most amazing gifts that we can give this next generation is not just the kingdom of God, but the awareness that the kingdom of God is not only now, but it's also now. And one of the biggest helps, especially to anxiety, is knowing, look, the kingdom of God can touch your life. Jesus is healing. Come to me now. But let's also be really frank about something. Everyone that Jesus healed in his day got sick again later. Even Lazarus that he raised from the dead ended up dying later. Every sign and miracle that Jesus did was temporary at best. And so is everything that Jesus would miraculously do in your life. The way that he would touch you or heal you. All temporary. But you know what's eternal and forever? The coming kingdom coming kingdom where all fear and anxiety will be completely washed away by the blood of Christ. That kingdom is coming. So praise God if he delivers you now from your depression and anxiety. Praise God if he ministers to you in a way where you experience the transcendent peace of God. Praise God if you experience illogical joy in his presence where all of your feels are turned all the way up and you can't help but just have your mind and your heart all aligned in the presence of Jesus. 
praise God for all of that. But can I also remind you that there's a day when ultimately those things will be dealt with, and it is not quite this day. And so if you're anxious, you can follow him being anxious. If you're depressed, you can follow Jesus being depressed. Did you know depression does not disqualify you from following Jesus? But take whatever you got and go where he's going and trust in the kingdom. It says, I may not get everything I want in this life, but I trust that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's a life to come when I will. And it's that life, that life that gives us hope. It's not a genie in a bottle vending machine God that just delivers to us all that we have but a real personal father that walks with us in the mess of this world and uses every light and momentary affliction to produce in us a glory that we won't even be able to fathom until the day we see it with our own eyes. I believe this next generation is desperately hungry for a good shepherd, a spiritual family, and the kingdom of God. My friends, this isn't rocket science. This is just the fundamentals of what the church of Jesus looks like. Can I invite you, no matter what it will look like practically, from a lot to almost very little, to just let your heart feel the way Jesus feels. Part of compassion for this next generation. I never say this is, oh, this is, this is just too young of a church. This church is just getting too young. Or maybe this is just a campus church. Dear God, no. This is a Jesus church. And it's not an orphanage. And it's the greatest privilege of any church to pour out its life for the generation coming up. Can I challenge you to let God stretch your heart and your love in this compassion? And this church will live up to it. Father in heaven, I know how your heart breaks for the lost. I know how your heart breaks for this next generation. How would you break ours? Now, there's such a variety of gifts and abilities in this room. There's some that will do much, some that will do very little. But I'm asking that all would love well. I'm asking, Father, that you, just like you would say, harvest is right, but the workers are few. I'm praying for this right harvest to be experienced by this church. They would see so many young lives touched by the gospel of Jesus. They would experience the joy of seeing your kingdom move in this next generation. I'm asking for favor on all the pastors, all the leaders, all the small groups, all the servants, everyone in this church, to be able to love in your name well. Thank you for being the good shepherd of this house, for building it into a great spiritual family, and for the promised hope of your kingdom. We love you and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.